This episode of Right at the Fork is brought to you by Zupan's Wear. Chris, I saw this with my very own eyes yesterday, and it got me so excited. The strawberries are in, baby. The the beautiful red, glossy strawberries? Oh, yeah. When, when I moved to, uh, to Portland seven years ago almost, I grew up in a town where we have strawberry days, and mm-hmm. the strawberries we had there were always imported from Mexico. Yeah, well, you would never go back and be able to eat no, those. No, once you this. have an Oregon strawberry, it's life-changing, and the best place to get it is Zupan's Markets. And they source theirs from Savvy Island. Yeah, oh, yeah. So... Uh, you, you walk in and you and you can just oh there's I, I, my I was, I was salivating looking at these strawberries yesterday. All right, you can finish this because I'm on my way to Zupans right now. Yeah, uh, right now. yeah. Visit Zupans.com and you can actually find delicious recipes on how to use these Columbia Farm strawberries, which is the farm where they are on Sovie Island. That's beautiful. Yeah. Also, another thing I wasn't even aware of: who doesn't love Saint Honoré Bakery? Oh yeah, and they are now carrying their baked goods. Uh, Eclairs, gâteaux, macarons, uh, in the K case, or their, of course, their croissants are great. Um, everything from Saint Honoré is now, not everything, but lots of them, at uh, at Zupans as well. And of course, don't forget the big dinners in the Breezeway. Those tickets are selling out fast. They're inclusive four course alfresco dining at the Lake Grove Store Breezeway. If you've never been out to that Breezeway. It's gorgeous. Yeah, it's really nice. Yeah. And they do have a heater there if it gets a little cool, cooler sure, if at it's night. too breezy. Yeah, heaters. You can go to zoopans.com slash big dinners for tickets and information. time once again for Portland's Food Scene Podcast. We call it Right at the Fork. And, uh, and we're glad about that. Yeah. We still think it's an okay name. <laughs> Way to sell it, Chris. It's an, okay, it's an okay name. I get a lot of people saying that's a good name. Yeah. So I'm, that's a great name. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Uh, yeah that's uh, Chris Angeles from Portland Food Adventures, and I'm Court Johnson from uh, from the radio. <laughs> and uh, I, I'm excited. We had our guest on today's podcast, and uh, I instantly went and followed him on Instagram, talking about Alan Weiner. And he's going to take a moment to describe what he tries to do when he takes photographs of, of food, and he nails it. I mean, there are some of the pictures in his Instagram feed where you see exactly what he's describing is just this. You, you start salivating looking at this food. Right. It's and it, unbelievable. And in a world where everybody's a photographer yeah. and taking pictures of food in this city anyway, um, we wanted to talk to him a little bit about the difference between what he does and what everybody else does. and. And, you know, he's hired professionally to do this. Right. But um, it was interesting to hear his take on on what he has in mind and what he wants to accomplish when he takes a photo. Right. Versus what I think a lot of people want to accomplish is just say, I was here. And no, doesn't that, that, this look good? That in, in, in short form is the biggest difference. It's like, <laughs> hey, I went here. This is what I ate. Right. Look how cool I am. Whereas he is like, this is a delicious meal. Here's Here's what's in it. And here's yeah, and, and, and this should make you salivate. And yeah, and and, and uh, again, there was one. It was a sandwich. It had an egg in it. That egg was dripping out. Oh man, I'm thinking yeah. about it right now. From Lardo, he's good at what he does. Oh, we yeah. have quite a few great photographers. I've actually approached a couple in the past, and um, Alan's the first one who came to me and said, "Hey, you should have a food photographer on the podcast." I said, "I'm all in, man. Come on in." So, yeah. uh, and and the bonus is we find out that Alan. The work that he's done 
to get to this point in food photography, he hasn't always been a food photographer. Right. Yeah, no, it's actually, when I started reading his bio, I'm like, wait a minute, what? It's you did this really before? You, cool, it's really cool. It's awesome. He, he was, so you'll hear, but he photographed for the New York Times, was under contract for 20 years. Yeah. And did a lot of political, a lot of social work for them, and uh, really fascinating guy. And I actually think we didn't get too deep. We started to touch on some of those uh, issues in terms of, you know, his experiences in American life and American political life. We talked a little bit about them, but yeah. there are a lot of different directions to go with Alan, and I'm pleased he was on the podcast. If you want it, what do you want? What would you prefer? Uh, just what would be the music of choice? If you could have, you know, baseball players for a few years, they had the, when they came up to bat, they had their clip of choice, their music of choice. Uh-huh. If you could have your music of choice to introduce you wow. on this podcast, what would it be? And that's something Court and I have discussed in the past. Yeah. What, oh, what would man. most typify you? Lots of songs are going through my head. Yeah, and you go you go back a little while. You know, you know you're not oh, 25 yeah. years old. No, no, so it could go. Would it would it be something something from the 70s? Yeah, 70s? you know, I'm I'm thinking Neil Young or Bob Dylan or you know something not too creative or or out there. Oh, they wouldn't be happy to hear that it's not <laughs> yeah. too creative. Well, creative <laughs> in today's world. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's because they weren't they weren't writing them around videos then. Um, I'll have to think about that. Yeah, no, it's all right. Yeah. It's not. It's not it's a okay. requirement. Okay. Do, but I just thought it'd be an interesting I mean, way to start. What What music would you? Yeah. Would you like to? Um. Yeah. I'll, I'll let me. That's cool. We'll get back to that. So, um, you sent your bio at like twelve oh seven last night, <laughs> something like that. Yeah. And you got. It's quite an interesting story. Where you've been, how you know the things you've done, and I found out before we spoke. And I don't really know you. You and I have not had much more than. Uh, you're usually working at events right. where I see you, so we don't have a lot of time to chit chat. So, thanks for coming in. This yeah. is a good good opportunity to get to know you. But um, want to get to know you because you've done some really cool things. You were a photographer for the New York Times for years, and if you look at some of the uh, some of the events that you covered. Uh, Pretty cool and some pretty depressing. Yeah, uh, it, it's. I mean, it, I I was really lucky to be in the spot I was in when I was in it because the position that I sort of created with my editor there um, doesn't exist at the t- even at the time I was doing it. There were only two or three people on contract around the world um, because they generally either hire you or they use stringers. So there was really not a lot of gray area. Um, so you had some nice security on contract. Yeah, it was, you knew you were getting a check. Yeah, every month. Yeah, it was really nice, and it'll also it was only fifteen days a month, so it allowed me to do some other things that I wanted to do. You know, do some do some corporate work and do some other things, and also screw off a lot, which you know was always a a good thing to do when you're in your twenties and thirties. Right, but you also probably took your camera when you were screwing off, so if something could happen in the middle of <laughs> screwing off sometimes i did learn to fly fish during those years so you know that was that was a lot of fun and that was in georgia it was yeah um they actually have rivers there that that had fish in them i don't know if they still do but you know i haven't been there in a while well we know that from deliverance (laughs) yeah right yeah banjo music 
I spent uh, a little time in Savannah. Did you get to oh, Savannah? Yeah. Oh, my yeah. parents were, that was my home away from home for oh, years. Yeah. Many times. Uh, great city. I like Savannah. And what do you, uh, do you miss Georgia? Do you miss Atlanta area? I mean, most people who moved, moved to Portland generally aren't missing where they came from. Yeah, and I, I certainly, I mean, Portland fits me better in terms of my, you know, the way I look at the world. Um, and the way I like to live, uh, I love the outdoors. I, I don't fish anymore, but I love to bike and hike and camp and all that stuff, um, and ski particularly, which keeps me sane in the winter. But um, the, um, I, you know, I, I don't, I don't miss Georgia generally speaking because Atlanta became. I moved there in 1980. And it was a million and a half people. And when I left there in 2002, it was four and a half million yeah, I people. Say, and now it's I think it's, yeah, five. and now it's I think it's over six. Wow! And the and, traffic there is, if we think Portland traffic oh, is bad, yeah, my multiply yeah. it times fifteen. <laughs> when I moved here, and every my wife and and everybody else would complain about the traffic in 2002 and 2003. And oh I'd, no! I'd kind of look at them like what? The longest it took me to get home from downtown <laughs> was ten minutes on a Friday, or fifteen yeah. minutes. Now yeah. that's not the case. Yeah. But, in fact, when, when I first moved here, I um, it was in the years when you still paid by the minute on your cell phone, mm-hmm. um, and and my cell phone bill went down by like seventy percent, and like took you me two or car. three months to realize I wasn't in my car anymore. Yeah, so I remember those days well. So talk a little bit about your. Um, we'll get to food photography because I find that an interesting topic, um, and it was actually your idea. <laughs> We've been thinking about it. We've asked a few photographers over the years, uh-huh. and we haven't been able to. A few of them are a little bashful. I don't oh, yeah. know. Bashful you weren't bashful. You came to me and said we should talk about food photography on the podcast. I said that wasn't. You didn't have to twist my arm. Well, it it seemed like a natural. You guys do such a great job with a lot of the chefs and a lot of the ancillary businesses um, around food in this town, which are amazing and plentiful. Um, but I'd never heard one on on this subject. No, I think it's a great, I have a lot to talk about on it and I'm going to have to refrain from probably pissing a few people off when it comes to certain things, but you do what you need to do. I don't Uh, need to do one thing. (laughs) It won't come from me. Court, We don't need to do anything. (laughs) We're just doing this. Mm -hmm. Um, but at any rate, so, um, uh, at a time when journalism is kind of under attack Mm -hmm. now Mm -hmm. and you were, you were doing photojournalism back in the, uh, 90s is that 80s 80s and 90s 90s. mostly yeah so uh talk about some of your experiences some of the the most my not uh the earth-changing experiences for you as a as a professional and as a person some things that you saw you know you were around some of the weather disasters and a lot of political things right well the the main thing that sort of propelled me into my interest into this business or that business um was growing up in Des Moines, Iowa, uh, you know, a, a, as a Jewish kid in a, you know, not a very Jewish environment um, with a mentally handicapped older brother. So there were sort of a lot of things that set me apart and made me different and, you know, in a lot of ways a minority, obviously. And so th- because of that, the civil rights movement sort of caught my attention as a young kid. I, we, you know, as a family, because all my grandparents came uh, from Eastern Europe, uh, escaping oppression, religious intolerance. Um, they were, it was, the issues of the day were always discussed and the news was always on. And so 
all that caught my attention and made me want to be part of the civil rights movement or cover it or, you know, I was fascinated with Martin Luther King and, and that whole movement. So journalism was a way to do that, was a way to touch it. And as soon as I got out of school, I got a job at a little awful you newspaper. You called it a shitty newspaper. I did. I did email. call it a shitty newspaper. In fact, <laughs> we used to refer to it as the Marietta Daily Urinal. It was the Marietta Daily Journal. But And it was it was shitty because at the time I got hired, I didn't know this, but the guy who owned it, uh, Otis, uh, Otis Brumby, um, was his father was a big Klan supporter, one of the one of the big, you know, guys, money guys behind the part of the Klan, which the Klan was also sort of headquartered in Stone Mountain, Georgia. Mm-hmm. And so I, it was like, as soon as I found that out, I was like, I'm out of here. You know, I had no idea that's what was going on. But but there were a lot of things that we couldn't do. Like we couldn't take pictures of black football players in high school, which was high school football was a big thing they covered. Um, we couldn't take pictures of black football players with their helmets off. You know, it's interesting. You wanted to get involved with the civil rights movement, you went, and you went where you weren't allowed to. You weren't, you know, into an industry where you should be covering it, and right, you were censored. Yeah, and it and it sort of was everywhere, which uh, is part of your experience, exactly. Right? So you exactly. see that, and I was like, okay, now I want to go. Now I really, really yeah. want to cover this shit. So I, I, you know, Georgia and the South in general gave me the opportunity to sort of dive in and cover that, and so that was sort of what what you know it was. It's personal. It was a personal thing that sort of made me want to cover those issues. So, um, I I covered it, and what was the the learning for me was that I thought, wow, you know, it's 1980, 1981 at that point, that a lot of this stuff was old history. That we had moved beyond this as a country, and that we were, you know, we were in good shape and. People really had some progressive ideas, and nobody really thought that way anymore. And what shocked me and, and was a great learning for me and has actually helped me since November 8th, um, it was the realization that, yeah, not as much has changed as I thought it had. And so I, I developed an, uh, a perspective that was um, about not expecting everyone to think the way I thought. And that was, a, that was a pretty big learning for me in my early 20s. And that's a big learning experience as you get older. You have to realize that everybody's got a different perspective. And they're probably right in many cases. I'm not talking about this, no. yeah. but just in life, you know, you can think you're very right and then think, well, no, everybody's seeing things through their own experiences, their, uh, their glasses, so mm-hmm. to speak. Mm-hmm. And that's something as a photographer you get to do is show it through your lens. Right. And and working for the paper, you know, there there's certainly an advocacy role that I felt journalism plays in the world, and that's kind of where I came from with it. But I also felt like I had to be fair and I had to be honest. And so if I saw something that didn't necessarily agree with my viewpoint or fit with my world, you know, conception, um, then... I had to try to understand it and report it. So, in other words, if if somebody, oh, well, for example, I uh, I covered the 30th anniversary of the march of from Bloody Sunday from Selma to Montgomery, and a lot of the NAACP people uh, reenact that march every year as an anniversary thing. And on the 30th anniversary, which was 1995, they. Um, they marched into Montgomery, and 
the one thing that one of the biggest things that didn't happen 30 years before happened that day, which was George Wallace, who was governor in 1965, refused to meet the marchers when they got to Montgomery. On this day, George Wallace decided he, it was time to meet the marchers. So I photographed that when they came in and when they all were standing up there with George Wallace locked arms singing, We Shall Overcome. It was one of those moments where, you know, I had a lot of personal feeling about George Wallace over the years, but I had to look at him in a different light at that moment. And, and I learned from my experience of, of shooting and doing this over those, at that point, 15 years, that you really have to give people, you have to take people at face value. And, and I really felt that, you know, he was nearing the end of his life. Um, in fact, I had an experience where I shot one other assignment with Wallace just a few months before he died, and he was actually at his home in this medical bed where he was, and he couldn't talk anymore, and he was just writing things, answers to questions. Plus, he had a lot of biblical quotes on his chalkboard. Um, and what I realized was he was sort of reaching the end of his life and realized that maybe he might not make the next step in his personal religious belief if he didn't repent for the sins that he perceived. So people evolve, and there's educational processes that go along with that, and I, you know, you have to be honest with that. So you know, I didn't want to show George in a, in a positive light, but there he was, and that's what you have to do because that's what's real. Right. Well, it's now, so people can make their own judgments based on where he was now, where he was before, whether it matters that he's repenting. You know, that's, that's all. That's all up to him. So how, how did it work? So you're a, a, a journalist for the New York Times, a mm-hmm. photojournalist. Mm-hmm. How did you work with writers? And, and did you start out with a, was there a hypothesis? Did you just shoot and learn and then, and then decide how you were going to position a story? So there were two, there was a bureau in Atlanta. We covered seven southern states out of that bureau. And um, the process was that that bureau had two writers and they would do whatever stories they were working on. And they would tell me what they were doing and we would devise a plan to go work on the story together. Sometimes they would have done most of their stuff on the phone and I had to go to the location and shoot without a reporter, which was fine. Uh, On all those occasions, oh, and then there was also people coming, reporters coming through from either New York or DC coming through our region and doing stories. Uh, and then there was the occasion that got greater and greater as time went on, as they trusted me more, where they would send me out of the region to do other stories that either fit with what I did well or they didn't have anybody else to do it, so I had to go do it, and it was fine. Um, so how did we decide how to work on a story? I mean, you know, obviously there's a topic. Uh, right, but do you have a point of view going in? Or do you form that as you go? Well, I mean, I'm human, so I have points of view on lots of things. And, you know, if we're doing a story on the, for example, for 10 or 12 years in a row, the county next to Atlanta, Gwinnett County, was the fastest growing county ever in the history of the world. And that's part of what that all growth thing was about. So you would go there and what are, you know whatever the specific story is you talk to specific people the you know the people in charge of the county and the planning and all that stuff and then what you do is you're going to ask questions certainly from a point of view but if you listen spend time listening to the answers then that leads you to what you need to know about that story so it was never I, never in the 20 years that I worked for the paper did I ever have a reporter who said to me okay 
this is the story and we're going to cover it this way. It was always, this is the story, let's go see what, what we can find. And it, no editor ever, photo editor ever, called me up and said, okay, st- it's story X, I want to see a picture of this. It was always, it's, this is what the story's about, go see what you find. And, and that's, that's a really, that's the way I learned journalism and that's the way I tried to practice it. Yeah, I, I'm sure it's very different in a lot of places that it doesn't work like that. But so we go back. Would you, uh, having been there, would you consider the New York Times a, a liberal publication? Um, you know, on the editorial side, it, it tends to lean left. But um, I've always felt like they tried to tell it the way it is, the way they see it. Everybody has filters, but. N- but there wasn't like a meeting of, you know, a conspiracy meeting that said, hey, we're going to we're going to cover everything from a left leaning perspective and we're going to ignore the stuff that we don't agree with. So is The New York Times a left? Yeah, it's a left leaning paper um, or a liberal paper. But I view that as a chicken and the egg situation. Personally speaking, I think they're they're generally unbiased. And what comes out is, the, you know, their truth. I don't think they're particularly trying to bend it one way or the other. It's just well, the inherent, to be that way. The inherent and it's New York, too. Right. So. Well, it's New York, but it's the world. I mean, right. they, they cover the world. But right, but the, they're based in New York with New York people in the headquarters. Right, with that right, mindset. right, right. But, but lib- the definition of liberal means you are open to new ideas right. or you are not married to a specific set of beliefs. And so... I would hope that most people would be that way, not liberal, but but liberal to ideas, open to ideas. Right. We want leaders that are open to ideas and yeah. not just set. I mean, we've seen that before and we kind of see it sometimes. Mm-hmm. Hypothetically speaking, we've we could see it. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, you want some you want people to change their ideas based on information and, well, and to make things better. Right. I mean, you don't you know, I've, I've never thought it was a good idea in the world to go out and sort of find things that enforce what I already believe. It, to me, it's a, lot, it's a lot better to learn and to understand the world if you go out and you take the information you have and then filter it through what you know. And you had some inf- interesting, it's an interesting experience to do what you did because someone, you know, Court and I might read the newspaper and we're, we're or, or watch TV or you were actually there experiencing it. I'm not, I'm not in the face of news all the time. I don't, you know, I've walked by a few protests in Portland. Right. Um, but in ter- and you know, the tornado in Manzanita mm-hmm. went right by me last year, but I'm not there. Interestingly enough, I actually photographed that and they put my photographs on the weather channel. So, you know, you're there, there you go. But, um, but it's interesting to actually experiencing, experience it and formulate your opinion from your own perspective rather than viewing it through the filter of someone else's photography, someone else's words. Yeah. And that, you know, that's all I can do, obviously. But yeah, there were a lot of really fun things that I got to do or interesting things that I got to do that allowed me to be in a place where history was in the making or um, where it was just something that you'll never see again. Or, or if you, I wasn't there with a camera, I wouldn't have been there. I love that you were filming space shots. Too. Oh, or, or photographing fo- space shots. Yeah, that was, that had to be awesome. That was amazing. I mean, it was the first, the only launch I covered was the first launch after uh, the Challenger explosion. It was about about two years. A little later. tension going on there. Well, a little bit, but it, it 
so my position for that launch was on top of the vertical assembly building, which I think is about a mile away from the launch pad. And the only other people who were up there were NASA employees who had worked on Challenger. So there was a lot of emotion. And, you know, the visuals from that were pretty strong. Um, so it was a story about a rocket launch, but it was really a story about the people who were involved and who felt a, a heavy weight of responsibility for losing seven people in the challenge, yeah, five does. people, whatever it was. Um, and, and then, but being able to see them move beyond that in a successful way, there was a lot of tears of joy and a lot of prayers and, and a lot of people with a lot of emotion. So uh, a blanket statement, is there a place to archive a lot of your work like that if we wanted to go see those shots? Um, there's my website, alanweinerphotography.com right, so okay. uh, has some of that. And then also you can um, you can go to the New York Times archive, but they don't include my photos. For, I'm not sure why. Well, plus you have to be photos. a subscriber now to go into the archives. Oh, do you? Okay. I'm a uh, subscriber, so I don't, yeah. Yeah, no, they, yeah. they don't allow any. And, and you arch- should subscribe to news. I think papers, so. whether it's the New York Times or whatever you believe and support. I agree. So you mentioned before they might they might have you on assignment uh, to cover what you do well. What is it that you do well? What is it, <laughs> or what was now it? Because is that is that you know has it changed from that photojournalism to food photography? But and we can talk about that. Link, yeah, yeah. But what was it that you did really well? So I, I one th- well I can define it by what I didn't do well. Um, I'm I'm not a sports shooter. I, I can get you a sports picture if you send me to an event, but there are some amazing sports photographers who do it all the time, and, and they're great at it. Uh, so even when I covered the Olympics uh, in Atlanta in 96 as part of the New York Times team, I covered sports, but I also tried to cover the human side of it a lot more, the the stuff that was going on around not necessarily the event itself. Wasn't that part of the ABC, the human drama yeah. of athletic competition? <laughs> the uh, thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. Exactly. Yeah, um, Yeah. so so I'm not a sports shooter. Um, so, and I love politics. So I was always, always loved those kinds of stories. And I loved stories that had to do with race. Um, and, and then I love stories that were really good stories where people were doing good things and for other people. And had you know gone out of their way, unknown people. Um, uh, it, it's that those were always fascinating things to me. So those were always stories that I sort of tended to gravitate toward, and they kind of knew that. But what were you? How were you good at covering those? What What did you do with your camera or your mindset to be able to be good at the guy that they would say, "Hey, Alan's good at this. Let's mm-hmm. get him out mm-hmm. there." Um, you mean, how did I approach a story? Yeah, is that did, why? Well, that's one thing to love it. You said you yeah. loved it and you yeah, enjoyed yeah. that, and that was something you got gratification for. But how did you shoot it as a as a photographer that made you the guy that they wanted to to do that? Well, I I I think that you know my approach is is pretty much the approach I've honed over all these years of shooting, which is I I show up in an event and I happen to have cameras with me. So what I try to do is listen a lot. So you know, if it's a story that requires you to figure out what's going on while you're on the ground, I, I was good at that. And and it partly, I think, hopefully, it's because I listen well. I pay attention. And I, I try to, um, I, I'm, I've learned that I think I'm pretty good at taking what I see happening and communicating it visually in a frame. And so 
things that are not predictable. Um, I, I love to shoot portraits, but I'm not a like super, like that's not all I do. And this is exact opposite of that. Portraits are set up. You've got an idea. You, you know, you create that. For example, uh, Damien Magista, who I know you, you did a podcast with when he was uh, at Be Local, when he founded that. I did a portrait of him that we planned out with bees all over him. And I know the photo. Yeah. I didn't know that was yours. That was me. And so that was a portrait that I had in my head that I thought this will be cool. When I met him, I thought, hey, you want to do that? So we set that up. So I knew what I was going for. What I was really good at in terms of journalism was going somewhere where you didn't know there wasn't anything that was going to happen that you knew or a preconceived idea for a visual. Uh, It was kind of put stuff in front of me, tell me what the story is, or let me figure it out, and then I'll get you a picture that tells you what that story was. On it, more candid stuff, I guess. And has it, I guess, when you're getting paid, you had your all your film paid for back then, but it was a different ballgame. You can take unlimited shots right now to come out with one, whereas I minored in photography in college and really enjoyed it, and I have some great photos of my days in Arizona. Oh. But... If I went to the Grand Canyon, I had 48 shots <laughs> or, or 30, you know, something like that. Or 72, 72, you had two right, rolls of right. Film. Yeah. yeah, well, I was probably buying the 24s, but, <laughs> um, but that, that's a very different thing than now just going with your phone and just you could have 3,000 shots at the end of the day. You have to approach it uh, differently then. Uh, professionally speaking, you had all you wanted to take. Well, n- do you approach it differently? No. I mean, a little, but but no. I mean, the idea is to capture what you want to capture in in as few frames as possible because that gives you more time to capture other things. But it's, you know, it's easy to take what they call a spray and pray approach, which is just shoot everything you see and hope there's something in there. And I, when you learn how to shoot film and you have 36 or 72 exposures then the idea is to try to capture it in that many exposures. It's not, you know, it makes it easier today to, to and, and, you know, I can shoot more stuff, but, but I don't have this sort of go crazy. I've got, it's all free because to be honest with you, it's, it's free, but it's not because time. time. Yeah. Because everything you shoot, you have to look through right? and at the back end, and then you have to process. And, and even in those days when you were on a deadline, uh, five o'clock was a page one meeting and, and you always wanted, if you had a story that you thought might be on page one or the, the writer thought, you know, Hey, it's good enough to be page one. We've got a five o'clock deadline in the old days. You know, I was essentially faxing pictures one at a time to them from wherever I was. And it was 15 to 20 minutes to send a photograph. And you also had to account for the amount of time it took you to develop the film, make a print and, and get it up there. And so you weren't doing that remotely. You had to get back to a, you had to get back to a studio. No, no. I was doing that from a hotel room or I, I traveled with a little portable dark room oh. and you would make the bathroom a dark room and wow, this process is stuff of breaking bad. Yeah. <laughs> you'd process, you know, process your film and make your print and then take this little fax machine that you yeah, fifteen put it on minutes, and it would you know. I had one in my office in 1984. There was one in my office uh, working in an ad agency. It would take 24 minutes for a page yeah. to go through. Yeah, and if you, yeah, and if you're in a hotel room and somebody tries to call your phone, because what 
I would have to do is it was before the phone would unplug from the wall, you know, right. it was hardwired in. So I would have to cut the cord and splice it into the machine. And then if somebody called your room while you were in the middle of one of those, it would put a hole in the transmission. So what you had to do is you got done. You didn't know it. You would get done, re-splice, put the phone, call the desk and say, do you get that? And they'd go, no, there's a hole in it. You You know, and you got, oh, I got 15 minutes. The things we take for granted. This would be a great time, Chris, for us to talk about our good friends at Standard TV and Appliance. And Gen Air. And Gen Air, both founded in 1947. Exactly. What a coincidence. And they've paired together to support this podcast. We're very happy about that. And if, we have good things to say. Yeah. If you've dreamed of having an appliance that is connected to to your Wi-Fi, for example, that you can control from you know maybe the office, Gen Air's got it. And Standard TV and Appliance has the Gen Air. Right. So- you're connected in every other way. Why not set your oven up so it'll start when you're on your way home? Yep, or you got that casserole sitting in there so it turns on and it's ready right when you walk in the door. Exactly. And this is this is the wave of the future. So get in now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd love to have that. So I think it's great that we have standard TV and appliance, which is locally owned and Oregon-based. It's awesome. I agree. That's what we're looking for on this podcast. And um, also, they're so kind as to, if you've shopped for a Jenner appliance, mm-hmm. Use the word fork, and don't just say fork. Right. Don't don't walk up to the salesperson while you're purchasing the Gen Air and wink and say fork. Right. You I, need to just say, I heard this on right at the fork, and hopefully they'll know what you were talking about. But again, we suggest you say that anyway when you walk in the door. Right. And the reason why is because they'll uh, they'll include a five-year warranty on your Gen Air appliance. Oh, thanks for yeah. supplying that information. Yeah, no, <laughs> you could just mention, hey, by the way, I listened to Right at the Fork. But right, but five-year warranty is pretty there's good. There's a benefit to it. Yes, exactly. They've got uh, five locations to serve you, so pretty much wherever you are, they are too. Right, there's one right there on uh, Sandy mm-hmm. that's that's great with a great showroom. Yep. And also, standardtvandappliance.com. If you go to our website, rightatthefork.com, you can click through and it'll take you right to the Gen Air portion of Standard TV and Appliance website. How'd you get... Uh, from that to food photography in Portland, Oregon. Okay. There's a story to that, I know. The, a nice story. There's a story there. Yeah. So I was, so remember I told you I was 15 days a month for the paper, and then I would do some corporate stuff or some other whatever. And there was a guy I worked for who sent me out to Medford for two weeks to shoot a story in Medford or a book. And I flew back up to Portland. This was uh, November of, of 2000. I, I drove back up to Portland, and... I was on a one o'clock flight from Portland back to Atlanta, um, and I got on the flight, and um, I was uh, in those days. I, you know, they used to give you meals on airplanes. Many people probably aren't mm, aware of that. I, rem- I remember those days. Do you? Yeah, yeah, they were fantastic yeah. too. Mm-hmm. Um, and but I and I always would put in a lactose intolerant meal because it, meals were better. So I. But I knew they brought it to the seat. So I got on and there were, it was almost an empty plane, but everybody was sitting like right next to each other. So I moved like 10 rows back so I could have a row to myself. And I flagged down a flight attendant and I said, excuse me, I wanted to let you know that I've moved. And, and she put her arms on her hips, her hands on her hips and said, well, that's, she interrupted me and said, that's fine unless you've ordered a special meal. I said, well, that's what I'm trying to tell you. And, um, it's a six-hour flight, and we ended up talking for about three of those hours, and she's been my wife for 11 years. Oh. So 
that's how I got to Portland because she lived here and I lived in Atlanta and I was kid. It was in my early forties, 41 or 42. And I was going through a divorce and I was like, I need to change it up. And so we started dating back and forth. I fell in love with her. I fell in love with Portland. And in 2002, in January, I moved here. Wow. So on your anniversary, do you go out and order a lactose intolerant, uh, <laughs> lactose-free meal? <laughs> no, that's a good idea. I, I thought, thought of that. that. I just yeah. thought it would be a kind Although, of a cute you know, thing to do someday. Fun would that be, though? So, so anyway, so I met her. We got out. I came out here. And then a couple years later, she decided she had owned a restaurant in Calgary um, in between her flying days. And she wanted to get back into the food world. So in 2004 or so, she started a little food company called Dulcet Cuisine. And they did sauces and dressings and mustards and ketchups and really delicious stuff. And then they, shortly after they started the company or she started the company, she said, hey, we need to put meals you can make with this stuff on our website. We're going to put recipes on. We're developing stuff. Do you, can you shoot it? And I was like, well, sure. How hard can that be? I mean, it's not moving and it's not shooting. And at I me can't and, say no. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm not likely to die <laughs> shooting it. <laughs> well, I could have said no, but you know, yeah, that's I might probably not, not be a good idea. happily married. Right. Exactly. So, um, so yeah, so I started shooting it and I thought, well, this is kind of fun. And you know, one thing led to another. And at about the same time, um, she had actually met, um, one of the uh, two people who have sort of been, in, in addition to my wife, Pam, being influential in, in you know, the start of this food photography career thing, um, there are two other people. And one of them was, uh, the first one is Ken Forkish uh, from Ken's Artisan Bakery and Pizza and Trifecta. Um, and he and Pam were friends. They'd known each other before Ken started his bakery. They had gone on a, met each other on a bike ride in Italy, just ser- serendipitously, and then sort of before he even lived here and then um went uh they ran into each other became friends she introduced me to him and he said hey i'm i'm starting this bakery and i want to get some pictures of my stuff for some ads we're running can you do that and i was like yeah of course i can do that i'm now a food photographer so we did that and ken and i became friends and one thing led to another with ken and before you know it I, you know, first cookbook I shot was Ken's bread baking book, um, and which won a James Beard award, not for photography, right. but for side note, we have a podcast. You know, the beautiful thing about this now is we, when anybody's mentioned, generally speaking, we have a podcast with them. <laughs> That's good. So if you want to hear Ken's story <laughs> about that book, I don't remember what number it is, but it's not too long ago yeah. in the archives. Anyway, well, I well, anyway, so I, so that. I owe a great debt of gratitude to Ken for, for sort of taking my food shooting from, you know, just sort of it being something I was doing to a career, if you will. Um, so that's, that's one. And then two, um, the other person who's really been supportive and, um, believed in me, letting me kind of do my thing with food is Rick Gencarelli. And, you know, Rick's an amazing chef. I mean, his talents are incredible. Um, and obviously owner of Lardo and Grasa and, um, beer o'clock, I think. Beer o'clock now. Yes. Yes. And, um, and so every week for the last year plus I've shot with Rick, uh, one of his restaurants 
for his, you know, social media stuff and for whatever. Yet I'm still waiting for a good photo of him to promote the (laughs) Italian trip. I have many good photos. We'll have to talk to him about that particular issue. All right. Because, you know, we don't we don't ever like pictures of ourselves. Right. Well, and I understand he wants one because he's he's been riding bikes and lost weight. He wants that one. So get the one when he's getting off the bike. And he looks the way he loves to look, and uh-huh. then let's do that. So, well, you'll, like I say, I'll give you his number if you want. You I can, want you to yeah. photo. I want you to come to Italy with us and photograph him it, in Italy. We need to find that. Is anybody listening that could sponsor Alan? To My come day with rates us? aren't that high. Yeah, I, well, that's what I'm I mean. We need to, to have somebody yeah. sponsor that and have end up with great shots, and we can have Rick holding their product. There uh, you as, go. Uh, you know, I think. That would be possible. Okay. Okay. Uh, sorry, I digress. It's always right. hard for me, especially, again, Rick, two podcasts mm-hmm. with Rick, yep. or one. Actually, three, and one never aired. Yeah, we should release that someday. Yeah. This the is one a, that wasn't- the, the unheard of Rick, the original one. Do is we that, have it? The original. So, I still, oh, yeah. We still right. have it. See, digital. See the beautiful thing of the digital world. You're never, you we go. always have everything in the archives. Never goes away. Exactly. Yeah. Do you? It's like the basement tapes, right? I mean, is that the Rick? The right, we have mm-hmm. to put some Grateful Dead go. behind it, and then we're, we're right. good. It'll work. Figure out some way to make it sound all scruffy, like it's you know been destroyed <laughs> somehow halfway. I think we should do that, <laughs> yeah. as maybe as an adjunct to this. So you're now you're shooting Ken. You've shot shots at Grass. I've seen you at different events now. Mm-hmm. Um, what is it? What are the challenges of being a food photographer in Portland, Oregon now? Because uh, here's where I want to get to eventually, and we mm-hmm. can just address that mm-hmm. now. Everybody, much like many industries, you know, and everybody thinks they're a writer. It's easy to type now. And, you know, it's easy to do this, everything. But certainly everybody thinks they're a photographer now. And um, what's, what's the difference between what you do and what a lot of people are doing on Instagram and can claim, hey, if this isn't being blown up to large format, this works? Yeah. Well, and, and it does. Um, and that's, that's the bottom line. I mean, you shoot to whatever you need to shoot, right? I mean, uh, if it, it's like anything in life. You do what is necessary to get you where you need to be. So I, I have, I mean, what I do is different from what everybody else does and what everybody else does is different from me Good, because, because I'm me, not because of the kind of camera I use or because, uh, you know, the way I process an image, but the way I look at stuff and the way I see stuff and... The, you know, I, I hope that when somebody looks at my work, they go, oh, yeah, this guy has kind of knows what he's doing because he's been doing it a long time. Although a lot of people who've been doing things a long time don't necessarily learn how to do it. But mm-hmm. but I hope that I have. And and so I, I think that, you know, the idea that everyone's a photographer is basically true because everybody has a camera. So. That in today's world, that makes you a photographer. The difference that I like to think is that I've made a living doing this, and so I, I have a different motivation. You know, it's not hey, I gotta, I gotta put money in the bank necessarily. I mean, this is never if I if that was the goal, I would have done something else a long time ago. But but I have to support myself, and so you can do people have proven you can do that with a with a phone what i have always believed is that you use the tools that best achieve the goals you want to get to and i don't think that a cell phone is there yet when it comes to communicating 
the the things you need to communicate about food. What I try to do when I shoot a picture of food is to first thing I do is look at the food and I try to see what's in it because I'm trying to communicate to the viewer just like I was in photojournalism what's going on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's got, you know, these various ingredients. Now obviously you can't see them all. Um, but you want to communicate as best you can what that thing's going to taste like when somebody puts it in their mouth. And when you have blocked up highlights and when you have lots of, you know, contrasty things that a phone tends to do, it's, you don't, you can't, your brain doesn't go, oh God, I know what that tastes like because you can't see it. And so I think, I think phones are great, and I think phones can do uh, certain things really well, as, as well as a camera, not better. I've never seen an iPhone picture that was better than a 35-millimeter camera. I've seen them be equal, and I've used them. I mean, there have been times when, like, you know, Rick has a chef witch mm-hmm. every month, and sometimes that chef witch isn't following the schedule of when I'm shooting, so I run by and I'll shoot it with a phone and we need it right away, and I'll, I'll shoot it with that, and, and we'll, you know, I'll send it to him, and he puts it up. But, um, but that isn't the preferred, I mean, that's not the best tool for doing that. It's like if you've got a four-acre lot at home, you're probably not going to, you can mow it with a push mower, but you're probably going to want something you can ride on, which right. is a more efficient way to do what you're doing. Right. A camera is exactly the same way. And, and to me, an iPhone is not the best overall tool in every situation to have with you to communicate what food tastes like, which is what you're doing when you're shooting. And I find that very interesting because that's what I wanted to get to. What your objective, there's a different objective going on. We live in a new world. Mm-hmm. So there's one as a photo- food photographer who wants to communicate ex- as best as possible how something tastes. And then there's another one which suffices which is to get that chef witch out or, or something else on social media and just expose it to as many people, regardless of how great it looks, this is there. It's just an announcement. And so that, that I think a lot of, there's a lot of Instagram food going on out there, and mine included. And it's, mine is basically to say, hey, you know, I was there, I, I experienced this, and I'm paying tribute to the chef, I'm tagging this, and this is what I do. And I think a lot of people do that. That's very different from food photography, and it's really easy to get the two mixed up uh, to easily say, well, what does Alan do that's so much better than this? And that's what I wanted to get to is what your mindset is going into it and what your objective is and what you do well. Well, and that's, that's my mindset. My mindset is to communicate as best I can what I see and taste in front of me. It's called social media for a reason. And there, you, you hit it on the head. There are two ways to approach social media. When I, I have my own Instagram account, and I put a lot of things on there that have nothing to do with food. They're, they're more about, hey, this is what I did today. I went for a hike yesterday in the gorge. I it saw that. You got some beautiful flowers going on yeah, there on a sunny flowers, day. Beautiful flowers, gorgeous. I, you know, I took a camera with me. I shot, shot a couple of pictures along the way and put it up there and said, hey, this is, you know, hope this brightens your day. Mm -hmm. And that was the idea. It's like, if you're following me, you're going to get, you know, here's kind of what I do and what I think, right? And that's exact. that's my whole thing. And, you know, I'm pretty good at composition and Mm -hmm. I decided, I decided a long time ago, I live in beautiful environments. I like 
my life, generally speaking. I'm not going to shoot the depressing moments, but but I like that I'm sharing with people to make them feel a little better. You know, dog, beautiful scenery in Oregon, that sort of thing. So I, I made the conscious decision a long time ago. I gave my Nikon to my son and said, let me, need, let me borrow this back when I need it for particular situations. But I always have my phone with me, and that enables me to do some pretty good photography because... I always have it with me. I yeah. don't have to. It's not something I ha- I'm on assignment. It's so I'm going to get more good shots that way. But doing what I do is exactly. It's only that. It's right. just to hey, let me share this and make someone smile and right. You know, it has up. it has no commercial value. And Instagram for a restaurant has commercial value, and that commercial value is in a couple of things. It's now Instagram when it started, and I think even today the one overriding thing that goes on there is it's not a blatant ad that says, hey, you know, we've got this for on sale today for four ninety nine. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, come down and you buy one. You can't do that. That's Especially not, you can't do that in it Portland. Is. It's so, hard to do. So it's trying to, you're trying to create a lifestyle, an image, an impression. Uh, this is what goes on at our restaurant. This is the kind of people we are. When you come here, you'll have this kind of experience. You're also going to eat this kind of food. And so that is more about, approaching the subject matter with an intent to communicate a certain idea. The idea is this is what we're about. These are pictures that will capture and communicate that. Not any exactly like I used to do for the paper. I would go to a story, see what's happening at that, at that story, and communicate it. Same thing at a restaurant, same thing wherever, whenever you shoot food. It's like, this is what's going on inside that sandwich or inside that pizza. So, or inside, you know, when you taste it, this is what you'll get. Social media, in a broader sense, like we've been talking about, is more about, hey, here's what I'm doing, and here's what I think, and I'm not constrained by those needs to be communicating something that's beyond what I think. So those are those are all legitimate things in our world and, and very different than it used to be. But some of those things are very much the same, I think. And it's also a little self-serving and narcissistic because you're <laughs> saying, here's where I am. Look at all the great places I go. And look how many people like me. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that's it too. I mean, well, it's I, that Sally Field. You love me. You really, really love me. Well... No, but we gave you an award. I wonder if they're an Instagram therapist, just <laughs> just to deal with that problem. Oh, I'm, Facebook. I'm sure there's somebody specializing in it. Right, specializing anymore? in unfriending and yeah. specializing in low low friend counts. Yeah, but instead of an hour, you you have 120 characters to describe. Right, uh, yeah, yeah, you got to tweet it in. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, a, good that's luck. A, right at the fork is brought to you by Zupans, unsurpassed quality. From the best meats and wines to local baked goods, fresh flowers, and an extensive craft beer selection. Step into Zupans and be inspired for your next meal. Food-loving customers as well as local chefs know that Zupans is the place to find the very best Northwest Bounty in Portland, West Burnside, Southwest McAdam, and Lake Oswego. Local and family-owned for over 40 years, Zupans Markets. La Ruta PDX. Get tickets now for the first ever La Ruta PDX Festival. Top chefs from Spain and around the world. Join forces with chefs from Portland dedicated to Spanish cuisine. It's a gastronomic festival July 14th through the 16th. That's four days of dinners, events, workshops, demos, and cultural experiences. Find out more and buy tickets at larutapdx.com. 
Standard TV and Appliance. Standard TV and Appliance offers the largest selection, fast delivery, professional installation, and live kitchens where you can try before you buy. Oregon-based and family-owned, setting the standard since 1947. Standard TV and Appliance is your place for quality Gen Air appliances and more. And by Portland Food Adventures. Imagine eating your way through Barcelona with Italo's Jose Chesa or Tuscany with Lardo and Grasa's Rick Gencarelli. Join right at the Fork host Chris Angeles with these great chefs in Europe this fall. Get more information under the blog tab at portlandfoodadventures.com where you can contact Chris directly. So do you, what do you have, what, do you have some projects you're excited about? Um, yeah, there's another cookbook coming up that I'm really excited about working uh, on that team with. I, I did a, a, a book for uh, Elise Kopecki and Shalane Flanagan uh, called Run Fast, Eat Slow about a year and a half or two years ago. And they're gearing up to do a second version of that book. And it, it was, uh, it's been on the New York Times bestseller list for, yeah, since heard, August. That was mentioned somewhere on this podcast. Yeah. I remember someone mm-hmm. talking about it. Uh, so we're going to do another one of those, which is really, really fun. And um, that's really exciting. I've got a couple of little ongoing things that I'm, I'm always looking to shoot more of. Um, one thing that I've seen and noticed as I've been in a lot of kitchens around Portland uh, is that, is that and not, a, not unlike everybody else, but, but I've seen a lot of chefs in the middle of cooking and being on their phone. And, and I, I find, I don't know why I find that humorous, but so I've got a lot of pictures. So, you know, maybe one day there'll be a, a chef's on their phone podcast or a uh, uh, group of photographs um everybody is i mean you well, know you yeah, hire any is. contractor there they've got the screwdriver in one <laughs> hand and the phone on the other and it's always humorous to me maybe because i didn't grow up seeing that but it's funny and in certain situations but i i you know i also um doing chef portraits is kind of fun like the thing with damien where it's more of a you know, an interpretive portrait, if you will, or an environmental portrait, as opposed to just stand there and you know right. hold some flowers. Yeah. How about some tattoo shots? Have you? Have you have some memorable? Who's got the best tattoo <laughs> shot? Uh, wow, I don't know. I I don't I don't even notice them anymore. You don't. You, no. okay. I would no. think you would as a photographer. Well, I, I see them. I wanted to. I think it'd be great to have a a book. Uh-huh. I'm sure there is. Well, Jay, yeah, well, I'm sure there's many books. Jason French has some pretty good tattoos. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, he comes, comes to mind, to mind. And, yeah. and Gabe Rucker has some really good yeah. ones. I don't know Gabe very well, but yeah, he, a few times I've met him, it, it seems like, like he's There are a lot of good yeah. ones out there. There are. There are. Um, and I don't do you, have any. Like, if you, see, when I see that, I, to me, that's visually interesting to see, you know, that brings some character to Well, yeah, to, and, and I think if you look at some of my photos, I use a lot of that, especially with with chefs or servers or whoever, you know, if I can get them to hold something and, and it works in with the food, it's kind of fun to incorporate that because it is such a part of the food world uh, and our world in general so these days. if you had, and I'm putting you on the spot here, one little tip for the, for the, the, the semi-professional, the, what do they call it when you, uh, well, anyway, people who don't do it are just hobbyists, I suppose. Well, Hobby photographer or the Instagram photographer. Mm-hmm. What one thing? Mine is wipe your lens. I mean that people don't know that <laughs> they have all these cloudy iPhone pictures. Wipe the lens. And on my the other one that I would have is uh, is pay attention to angle. If you've got if you've got a beautiful dish that's stacked, why are you shooting it from above? Right. Right. Um, well, there, so there's there's technical advice, and, and one of those things would be sort of background. Pay attention to background because mm-hmm. 
we tend to look at what we're looking at and then forget about everything else. And background can really help enhance a photograph or help um, make you draw your attention to the thing you want to see. And if it's a crappy background, you're ruining the picture. Move right? it. Yeah. But, but what I would tell you, that my, my, the advice I, I usually give to people when they ask uh, about what I, you know, what can I do to take better pictures is to, to understand that every time you take a picture, you're communicating something. And you wouldn't, well, a lot of people do. I do, obviously, by the last 51 minutes or two minutes. Uh, but who's counting? We, right. You, you can, you know, you can kind of open your mouth and not think about what you're saying, but you're not communicating very efficiently when you do that. Same thing with a camera. It, a picture communicates something. And sometimes it communicates really well, and sometimes it doesn't communicate at all. But you have the opportunity to say something every time you shoot a picture. And if you think about that before you shoot a picture or before you post a picture, what am I saying? What am I trying to say? And does this say it? That's, that's probably the best approach. And then there's not only shooting it, there's posting it too. <laughs> Do I need to post this picture? It's not attractive. It's not appealing. It's with a flash or whatever, does this, is this going to help anybody? I well, say, ask that question. Beauty is in the eye of the person who posts a picture. Yeah, yes. I so, guess. Yeah. But there, there, you know, there's a difference between posting and actually publishing. It's true. Um, so <laughs> do you have some uh, spots that uh, have particularly beautiful and delicious food that you've been hitting lately? Are you a big eater? Yeah, I love, I love to eat and I love to go to a restaurants. I would think it'd be tough food. to shoot it and not care about the food. Yeah. I mean, th that's one of the things that I, from the time I was 19 years old and, and found myself in my own apartment at college, that I remember that first night, it was like 530 and went, well, what do I do now? There, who's going to make dinner? It's always mom or the cafeteria, but you know, now it's me. So since then, and in fact, cooking is a lot like being in the dark room because, you know, you're measuring things and mixing things and Anyway, um, so yeah, I've always I've always loved food. Anyway, so yeah, there's some great. I mean, obviously, you know, all of I, and and not because I work for them, but well, you see them too. I, you're, 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 yeah, I mean, Ken's Pizza and and Trifecta are great places. The bakery's fantastic. Um, Rick's places are fantastic. I you mentioned Gabe Rucker. I love his restaurants. I don't know Gabe at all, but I think there's some of the more you know inventive and creative places. Absolutely. Uh, Jason French at Ned Ludd, I think does a fantastic job. Park Kitchen. I, I love Park Kitchen. It's one of those little places that've been here a long time and it's kind of forgotten about. Um, and, and it's also very photogenic in there too. It is. That's a good question. What are some of the more photogenic? When you walk into a restaurant, are you do you immediately notice this is beautiful? Are you looking at the aesthetics? I do. Yeah, And, and that's a big part of it for me. Is absolutely. I, yeah. I had dinner at Tusk, or just dessert the other night at Tusk. Mm -hmm. It's beautiful. Yeah. You, you, it's hard to get a bad shot in there. You have I, to try. Right. And, and uh, Ava Jean's is a beautiful space. Uh, Woodsman Tavern is a beautiful space. Um, there's, there's a lot. I mean, you know, Portland is, tends to be more utilitarian. It, it's not as, like, you know, you go to San Francisco or even Seattle. Right. There's a lot more places that are you walk in and kind of take your breath away visually. Uh, here we're a little more, um, you know, down to earth, I guess. Although mm -hmm. it's starting to change, I think a little bit. But but I, you know, obviously you walk in and you know first bites in the eye, and that first bite comes when you walk in. So mm -hmm. 
I agree. The, whole, the, the all the environment and the people you're there with. I like to shoot. Uh, generally speaking, for me, less food and more people enjoying it. I like that, and uh, we see a lot of food, and that's great. Well, right. and that that's an approach too. That you know, I I think there like I I shoot for Ruby Jewel uh, a lot, and uh, there was a picture they posted the other day that I shot of a little kid being handed a cone, and the expression on his face was like overjoyed that says more than the cone itself we've seen ice cream cone ice cream cone is this big in the picture not very you can't see that on radio but it's it's not a very big part of the picture but you understand what the food's like because of the expression on his face so those things to me different ways to express how good food is rather than just shooting a picture of the dish or i think something i try to try to do yeah those are the i i you know i'll look at a food shot and think oh that's really nice my favorite shots that I've done, I have one of a couple of our guests at the Boqueria last year when Jose brought over one of the uh, chuchos for them mm-hmm. to try. I have a shot of them just looking, a married couple looking at each other orgasmically speaking, or just <laughs> the, and it's in their faces. I think it's fantastic. So I enjoy that. Cool. Thanks so much. You're welcome. For coming in. Thank you. Time goes fast. It and does. we didn't cover, you sent me this beautiful bio that I don't, did you write it just for us? Uh, or did you have that yeah, somewhere else? but that's sort of... But that know, was really nice, here. and we didn't get to cover it all. We got a little bit okay. of it. But thanks okay. so much. I appreciate it. Well, and now I got, I've got i taken that flight from Portland to Atlanta a few times, and I've never met a Pam. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, there's only one Pam. Well, I know, but I, I, I said a Pam. Yes. So okay. uh, anyway, good, well, that, good luck with that. Good, good, good for you and good for finding Portland and uh, a new life. Well, thanks. Yeah, I, it, I've been here 15 years, and I... Never thought about living anywhere else. Same with 12, 12 for me. Fantastic. Not looking place. back. Yeah, I love it. Right at the Fork is hosted and produced by Chris Angeles and Court Johnson. Intro music by Ariel Varinas. Find links to her music in the show notes section. Connect with us on Twitter and Instagram at Food Podcast PDX or on Facebook at Right at the Fork or online at rightatthefork.com. Right